Welcome to Secrets True Crime, The Disappearance of Jessica Hamby. I am your host, Amber Sitton. What is done in darkness will eventually come to light. That is the purpose of this podcast, to shine light on the disappearance of Jessica Hamby. Listener discretion is advised. The subject matter may involve violence, sexual content, murder, and adult themes. This episode does contain foul language. It is not suitable for younger listeners. This is episode 14 of season three of a serialized podcast, and the episodes are designed to be listened to in order. Jessica Leanne Hamby has been missing since January 3rd, 2018. At the time of her disappearance, the 24-year-old mother of three was a beautiful brunette with big hazel eyes. She had a head full of long, thick hair, was five foot two inches tall, and weighed about 125 pounds. In the almost five years since Jessica was last reported to be seen, the stories regarding her disappearance and fate have been plentiful and the facts scarce. We are starting from the beginning, and by the beginning, we are beginning with Jessica's life six months prior to her disappearance as we bring to you the findings of our investigation in real time. The release date of this episode is December 22nd, 2022, almost five years ago to the day that Jessica was kicked out of her mom and stepdad's home just before Christmas. Many of us are in the midst of the holiday season, full of food, family gatherings with loved ones, and celebrations. We want to take you back to five years ago, to Jessica's last Christmas and her last New Year. Some of this information you've heard, but there are lots of new revelations too. I know as we dig into these cases, our focus is almost always on finding the answers to the who, what, when, where, and why. But maybe sometimes we should all just take a few minutes to try to put ourselves in Jessica's shoes and imagine what she had to have been feeling during those last couple weeks, especially during the holidays. All of those sights and sounds, thoughts and hopes and wishes of Christmas were in the air. Jessica would have seen bright lights and Christmas decorations in all the places she was going. There was probably a Christmas tree and presents in the houses she visited and the friends she saw 
likely talked about their holiday plans, what they were getting their family for Christmas. Traffic was probably packed in some places, and stores were crowded with last-minute shoppers. If you've had any doubt that Jessica was scared and running from something after Jeremy Abbott's death, that doubt should fade now. If there's one time of year that being with family comes to mind, it's Christmas. If you have young children, seeing their happy faces as they open gifts is not something you can easily put aside. While I have no doubt that her children were on her mind over the holidays, and she likely shed many tears not seeing them or getting to spend time with them over Christmas, whatever it was that prevented her from seeing them was clearly something that frightened her so much that she felt that was the best decision to make. Many assumptions have been made about Jessica and I'm sure will continue to be made. Many generalizations about addicts have been applied to her and the choices she made in the last few weeks before her disappearance. Many have and will continue to assume that it was the pursuit of her next high that kept her away from family during that time, but we don't think that's the reality of the situation. While Jessica clearly had her struggles with addiction, she did not have a history of not showing up for holidays and special occasions with her kids or her family. Most every move she made those last weeks was out of her norm. No one can explain why in the world Jessica contacted only Alicia when she left detox. The odd choices continued with who she asked for rides that night and the next morning. What might be more significant than who she contacted for help is who she didn't contact because there's a dozen or two people that Jessica had been close to within the weeks and months prior to her disappearance that she didn't contact. Sometime in the week or so before Christmas 2017, Jessica had plans. On December 18th, her sister, Shana, her niece, her dad, and her kids had all spent time with her at her mom Lynn's house. Keith told us that he and Jessica's oldest son visited Jessica again at Lynn's house on December 21st, and they made plans for her to spend Christmas Day at his home with her kids. Unfortunately, things didn't go as planned. There was some sort of dispute, and Lynn kicked Jessica out of her home sometime before Christmas. Lynn told us she thought it happened on December 21st. Jessica sent messages to various people indicating she'd been kicked out two days before Christmas, and it was evident that Jessica was upset and angry about the situation with her mom and Cody. Like so many other details in this case, 
The source of the dispute that resulted in Jessica being homeless is not clear. We've gotten numerous accounts of it, and none quite match the others. Many of those stories involve stolen electronic devices. One such story involves laptop computers owned by Lynn's friend at the time, Susan DeLay. Susan's laptops were at Lynn and her husband at the time, Cody Ballard's house, because both devices had gotten locked, and Cody had agreed to unlock them for Susan. Jessica allegedly stole the laptops and traded them to a familiar name, Daniel Luna. Jessica's dad, Keith, told us he heard about the situation and confronted Jessica. He told us that he instructed Jessica to take the devices back to Lynn's, and Jessica told him that she did. Keith told us that he spoke to Lynn, and Lynn confirmed to him that Jessica returned them to her. There has been so much speculation surrounding this event, but since we'd been told the laptops were returned, these rumors were not even close to the top of our list of priorities to run down. The story of the laptops came up again recently with Cody Ballard. We were surprised when he told us that the laptops were never returned to Susan. In the last month, Michael made a trip to speak to Susan. She was not home, but her friend Shannon was there. He explained to Michael that he is Lynn's cousin and knew Jessica and Lynn well. Michael mentioned the stolen laptops and asked Shannon if they had ever been returned. He told Michael he was fairly certain that Susan had never gotten her laptops back. Susan called Michael a few days later, and she also confirmed that Lynn and Cody had her laptops to try to retrieve some personal photographs from them for her and that Lynn told her Jessica took the laptops and traded them to Daniel Luna for drugs. She said the laptops were never returned, and she's not even sure now that Jessica was the one that stole them. An even stranger twist is that Susan said someone contacted her and told her she could get her computers back for $150. That's right, another strange ransom demand. She told Michael they insisted that she send the money through Walmart, and then she would get her computers. Susan was more than willing to pay the money because the photos she was trying to get were of her deceased husband, but she was not going to send the money and then wait for her computers. She said she told them they could bring her the computers and she'd hand them $150. That exchange never happened. Susan also had some thoughts on the other ransom demand for Jessica. Susan told Michael that she and Shannon were in Florida when Jessica went missing, but they were back home when the ransom demands for Jessica began, and she remembered Lynn and Cody being at her house when it happened. Susan noted that she thought it was strange that no one ever really talks about the ransom and that she suspects it could have been a scam for money. 
Susan also shared a new detail we'd never heard before. She told Michael that a hard drive had also been stolen from her home for her desktop computer. She said she had a Dell computer that just stopped working properly, and she finally figured out that the issue with it was someone had stolen her hard drive and replaced it with an incompatible Acer hard drive. Susan suggested that maybe those ransom demands from Dwayne John were actually sent from her desktop computer, and she said that Lynn, Kristen, and Cody were always on her computer during their frequent visits to her home. She noted that someone sure wanted her hard drive for some reason and suggested maybe that's why it was stolen. She told Michael she believed her hard drive had been at Kristen's house and that Kristen claimed Cody had later taken it from her home, meaning Kristen's home. While the conflicting accounts surrounding Susan's stolen laptops are intriguing, we believe they were stolen earlier in 2017, and this is not likely related to why Jessica was kicked out of the house a couple days before Christmas. Regardless, the information does bring to light even more inexplicable discrepancies in statements. Susan DeLay's stolen laptops are often a theory that is whispered about when people discuss what could have happened to both Daniel Luna and Jessica, and it's a theory that Lynn has been asked about, too. Lynn has told others that she, too, heard those rumors, and she has told more than one person that she and Susan had ended their friendship way before Jessica vanished. However, that obviously wasn't the case since Susan, Shannon, Cody, and Lynn are all in agreement that Lynn and Cody were at Susan's home the night that the ransom demands for Jessica began. The very same night that Lynn shared her live location with Dwayne John, while the location pin was in a very rural area, it was only minutes from Susan's home. Lynn and Cody have both said Jessica was kicked out because she stole Cody's son's tablet. While their general story is consistent, the details of what each says happened is quite different. Also, if you recall, Jane is the alias name we used for the woman who lived next door to Jessica, Lynn, and Cody, and she's also the woman who drove Jessica to the detox facility. Apparently, Jane owned the trailer that Lynn and Cody were living in, but the trailer sits just across the property line on land that Jane did not own but may have been leasing. Jane told us she was there when Jessica was kicked out, and she said she witnessed the dispute. She told us that Lynn and Jessica had been trying to sell the tablet, and she took the tablet to a friend to see if this friend might want to buy it. Jane said when she got back, she left the tablet in the back seat of her car, 
the Mercedes-Benz that Jessica was sometimes allowed to drive. Later, Lynn became angry. She told Jane that the device was missing and Jessica had stolen it. Jane told us she tried to tell Lynn that it had been in the Mercedes, but Lynn was insistent that Jane go pick Jessica up and bring her home. So Jane did. Jane said that Jessica was adamant that she did not steal the tablet. But the argument between Jessica and Lynn got quite heated and ended with Lynn kicking Jessica out. Jane told us that after Jessica left, Lynn discovered Cody had the tablet in question all along. He'd seen it in the car earlier that day and had taken it back inside the house. On top of the odd conflicts to key points in the stories about the tablet, there were other events happening around this time five years ago that make us question the timing of that event as well. Either in November or December 2017, Lynn and Cody split up and Cody had moved out. Lynn told Michael that Cody had the electricity at the home they were living in turned off. Lynn said they opened a new account in Jessica's name, but she claimed that just a week or so later, the power company disconnected service. Cody and Lynn had patched things up and were back together well before Christmas. When Christmas came, they only had a small heater in the home that was powered by an extension cord that they had stretched through the woods from Jane's place to theirs. Cody told us that by the time the extremely cold weather hit the area at the 1st of January, it was too cold to stay there, and they got a room at the Haleyville Motel. Lynn estimated their stay at the motel to be around January 1st or 2nd. In an interview for another podcast, that aired just a year after Jessica disappeared. Lynn stated she didn't call to check on Jessica at the detox facility on January 2nd because they were moving that day. What we know for sure is that by January 6th, Cody and Lynn had moved out of the home they lived in with Jessica and were living in an apartment. Oddly enough, Jane also moved to a new location around this general time frame as well. She told us that with Jessica disappearing, her son was afraid for her to continue living there, and he arranged for her to move. All of this information about the lack of power and the move came to light after another person came forward with a story of why Jessica was kicked out. This individual had knowledge that the power had been cut off to Lynn and Cody's home prior to Christmas, and they claimed that Cody and Lynn asked Jessica to do something for someone in exchange for that person paying their power bill. That is yet another story we can't corroborate, so we will spare any further details for now. Regardless of the reason, Jessica found herself homeless within days of Christmas 2017, and neither her dad nor her sister knew. 
According to Mary, Jessica came to stay with her before Christmas, and she's pretty certain that it was on December 23rd. Mary also did not have power, so the two of them stayed in a room at the Haleyville Motel. I know many of you listening do not have firsthand knowledge of the Haleyville Motel. I can tell you this. It's not where too many of us would choose to spend a holiday such as Christmas unless we had run out of all other options. Truthfully, it's not where most of us would ever truly want to spend a night at any time of the year. It is well known for a great deal of drug activity and is not noted for such things such as cleanliness. The city of Haleyville has a lawsuit in process now to shut the motel down due to the condition of it and all the drug-related issues the city is experiencing with it. One source claims that sometime during Jessica and Mary's stay there and prior to Christmas, Jesse Abbott showed up at the hotel with a gun threatening Jessica and trying to gain access to their room. Mary has said that if this happened, she didn't know about it. The source told us Jessica fled the hotel on foot that very night. Mary says that Jessica stayed with her until December 26th and that they left the motel together to stay with Mary's neighbor, but that Jessica had someone pick her up later that day. Antonio Gibson an ex of Jessica's, has told us that he received a frantic call from Jessica during the wee hours of the morning on Christmas Day. He said Jessica told him she was in trouble and needed him to come get her. He claims he picked her up in South Haleyville and took her with him to neighboring Franklin County to stay at one of his friend's homes that he considered to be family. The home was in the city of Phil Campbell, and he said Jessica spent Christmas Day there, and she reportedly remained there until Jane picked her up to drive her to the detox facility on December 28th. Lynn told us that she tried to reach Jessica on Christmas Day, but wasn't able to. Jessica did not show up at her dad's house on Christmas and he also unsuccessfully tried to reach her. This was way out of character for Jessica. Yes, she was struggling with addiction, but she was not one to leave her kids hanging. Also, Keith had a tradition of giving his adult children cash for Christmas, and it was a healthy sum of money. Jessica knew her dad had a nice amount of cash waiting for her. We find this to be an important point because it undermines any theory that Jessica was just off on a drug binge. If that was what Jessica was focused on, she'd have shown up to get that Christmas money from her dad. Could the reported threats against Jessica in the days prior to Christmas have been the reason she did not show up at her dad's that day? There are some indications that could be the case. Whatever the reason was, 
what we know is that Jessica spent her last Christmas without having contact with any of her family. Antonio told us that when he picked Jessica up in the wee hours of Christmas morning, she was exhausted, hungry, and scared. This has become a familiar description of Jessica by others who encountered her prior to her disappearance, and it's one you'll hear again soon. Antonio told us he took her back to this home in Phil Campbell, where they fed her, let her take a shower, and get some much-needed sleep. For years, Jessica's dad and others believed this home was occupied by a specific person, but the information they'd been given was inaccurate. In reality, it was the home of a married couple named Josh and Lacey Sneed, and they lived there with their children. The couple have since divorced, and coincidentally, Josh and Jessica's mom, Lynn, are now a couple as of sometime in 2022. This home is also where Jessica saw both Alicia Motes and her brother, Eric Motes, as both are reported to have spent time there at the same time Jessica did. Eric is Derek Motes' twin brother. While Jessica was at Resurrection Ranch at the same time as Alicia in the spring and early summer of 2017, this encounter is the only other known contact that Jessica had with Alicia Motes in years until Jessica checked out of the detox facility and for some unexplained reason immediately contacted her and her alone. If you'll recall, on January 18th, Alicia messaged her brother Eric Motes from Eric Edwards' second Facebook account that I like to refer to as his secret squirrel account. Alicia told her brother, Hey, this is your sister. I need you to call me ASAP. And I also need Josh and Lacey's number, but call me as quick as you can. I asked Lynn what Alicia wanted with the Sneeds, and she told me Josh said he didn't know because he checked into rehab on either January 1st or 2nd in 2018, so he wasn't at home during that time. On December 28th, Jessica went to a local gas station in Phil Campbell with Antonio, and Antonio attempted to pay with a counterfeit $50 bill. The clerk realized the money was counterfeit and called the police. Jessica left the gas station prior to law enforcement arriving. Antonio told me he waited for the police to arrive, and he was taken to jail, where he remained until February 12, 2018. This all supposedly occurred earlier on the day that Jessica checked into the detox facility. Jane described Jessica as being very anxious to be picked up that night. She said Jessica called her repeatedly to see if she was close to arriving. 
Jane said it was so out of character for Jessica that it spooked her, and she was afraid to drive up to the home where Jessica was. So she instructed Jessica to meet her at the street in front of the house. Jessica did walk to the street, but Jane arrived early enough to see which home Jessica was at, which is how we were able to identify this specific home where Jessica was during that time. Jane told us she drove Jessica straight to the detox facility that night, and they made no stops on the way. She described Jessica as scared and not herself, and a staff member at the detox facility has echoed the statement that Jessica was scared. We've wondered what suddenly made Jessica fearful again that day. Lynn told us she thought it was because she got scared when Antonio got arrested. She also noted that she thought Jessica didn't want to impose on the Sneed family with Antonio no longer being there with her. But neither explanation seems to fit the urgency to leave that Jane described. I asked Lynn to ask Josh again if anything could have happened on the afternoon of December 28th that could have spooked or upset Jessica. She told me that Sneed said he didn't know because he wasn't home that afternoon because he'd left to attend a birthday party for a family member. While they didn't know the specific details or events that drove Jessica to enter the detox facility that night, a staff member told us that Jessica confided in them that she'd seen her friend's murder. She said Jessica told them she'd only come to the detox facility for her own safety because the police did not give her the protection she'd been promised. One staff member also told us that Jessica expressed a lot of anger towards her mom while she was there, but Jessica was otherwise described as generally happy, feisty, and a goofball. As you've heard in a prior episode, Jessica was wearing fuzzy socks and was sliding down the hallways at the detox facility when she fell and broke her front tooth. We were told that it hurt her and she was upset and self-conscious about it. Initially, she was taken to the emergency room by a nurse on staff, but she was back upstairs in the detox facility shortly thereafter. While at detox, Jessica was befriended by another patient named Brooke, and that is where she spent her last New Year's Eve and day. The staff at the facility told us that Jessica's dad and Jane were both in regular communication with her and were giving Jessica a lot of encouragement and support. They also noted that Lynn delivered clothing and toiletries to the facility for Jessica to have during her stay there. After leaving the detox facility and meeting up with Alicia, Derek, Eric, and Shane, Jessica stopped communicating at just before 8 a.m. on January 3rd. It has mostly been assumed that something happened to Jessica that morning that caused her communication to stop. 
and the area where that happened has received most of the attention in the effort to determine what happened to her. What hasn't been spoken of publicly much is that there is the possibility that Jessica was still alive after 8 a.m. on January 3rd. In some of the earlier episodes of this season about Jessica, we discussed the content of messages that she and Marcos Pagan exchanged on the morning of January 3rd, 2018. Those messages are significant for a few reasons, and one of those we haven't revealed yet. At 7.33 a.m., Jessica sent Marcos several screenshots of a conversation she'd had with his mother several hours earlier. The screenshots were taken at the same time they were sent to him. The screenshots also captured the time displayed on Jessica's phone, and the screenshots were sent to Marcos at the exact time displayed on the phone at the time the screenshots were taken. The screenshots also recorded some other valuable data from Jessica's phone. We can determine that Jessica had her phone on the vibrate setting. We can see that she did not have a strong cell signal. Most importantly, we can see that her phone battery only had 18% remaining and she had her hotspot turned on. There's only one reason to have your hotspot turned on, and that is to share your phone's cellular data connection with another device, and the hotspot being turned on would have used up Jessica's minimal battery life much faster than normal. It's a pretty safe assumption that Jessica was not alone at that time, and this is confirmed by Nelos, which indicates that Jessica's phone was in Northwest Hamilton at the exact time she sent the screenshots to Marcos. The Nelos data also reveals that she was traveling at a speed that indicates she was in a vehicle. It was just 18 minutes later at 7.51 a.m. that Jessica sent Eric Edwards the message that said, Hey, they ain't gonna shoot me for walking. At 7.53 a.m., Jessica called Eric's phone, but he didn't answer. The Nelos reports indicate Jessica was within a 5,000-meter radius of the hunting club area off Highway 29 near New Hope Baptist Church, and Eric's devices, both of them, were at home. After 7.54 a.m., there's no more activity from Jessica's phone. Due to the content of that last message Jessica sent to Eric, one of the primary theories has been that something happened to Jessica shortly after that message was sent. While we can't rule that out, there are other possibilities. Another viable possibility is that Jessica's phone died shortly after she made that phone call to Eric Edwards. According to Nelos, 
one of Eric's devices drove to the same area where Jessica was when she sent that message to him. What if Eric and or Alicia drove there to pick Jessica up that morning and she left that location alive and well? There have been some seemingly credible reports that Jessica was indeed alive and well on the evening of January 3rd and still in the North Fork area of Marion County at that time. In some of those reports, she was even in the presence of some of Eric Edwards' family and associates, which would support the idea that whoever had Eric's phone that morning picked Jessica up. If that is the case, the next logical question is why didn't she recharge her phone and resume communications with people again later? We can't answer that with certainty, but there are a number of plausible theories. For example, could Jessica have broken her phone? In one reported sighting of Jessica in the North Fork area on the night of January 3rd and morning of January 4th, it was noted that she did not have a phone and she was traveling in Eric Edwards' white Tahoe. Heather Johnson gave a statement that sometime prior to when she went to jail on January 9th, she found a phone in the seat pocket in the back of Eric's Tahoe and that the screen was broken. In other stories, Jessica was eventually picked up from the area by someone she knew and they took her somewhere else. It's been largely assumed that if Jessica left North Fork, it happened around 8 a.m. on the 3rd or shortly thereafter. As stated, that is still a viable theory, but we can't rule out that someone didn't pick her up later that day or even days later. An even more likely theory might be that Jessica was driven from the North Fork area to another area at a later time by some of the very people she was with in North Fork and whose names have been associated with Jessica's disappearance since the beginning. After Jessica was reported missing, there were many alleged sightings of Jessica in places like Hackleburg, Haleyville, Red Bay, Russellville, and East Franklin. Those reports are unconfirmed to the best of our knowledge, and we aren't certain how many of those reports made their way to law enforcement. Most of the people that run in the same circles that Jessica and people surrounding her at the time of her disappearance don't make a habit of sharing a lot of information with law enforcement. Some of what we are left to work with almost five years later are screenshots of messages from one individual to another talking about what they saw or heard at the time. This information is more time-consuming to chase down, especially years later, but it is still valuable. A significant percentage of those tips 
place Jessica in Franklin County after January 3rd, 2018, and some of the tips have begun to fit together with information we've presented to you in earlier episodes. For example, in episode 9, we read much of the transcript of the interview that Chief Kenny Hallmark conducted with Andre Newell. Andre was being interviewed because apparently someone had provided screenshots of a message from Andre in which he said that he helped hide Jessica's body. Judging by the number of tips we and others have received in relation to Andre, it would seem that at a minimum, Andre told a lot of people that he had involvement in Jessica's disappearance. Not only that, some of the people that Jessica was allegedly seen around or with are familiar names in other missing person and suspicious death cases in the Winston and Franklin County areas. And at least one of those names is someone Jessica was asking for a ride and is known to be a good friend and associate to Andre Newell. Join us next time as we dig deeper into those connections and discuss the evidence that ties those individuals together and the lies, crooked deals, and strange deaths that surround them and could indicate they know more about what happened to Jessica Hamby than they are all admitting. If you have any information that could help solve the disappearance of Jessica Hamby or the death of Jeremy Abbott, please email me at secretstruecrime at gmail.com or call our confidential tip line at 205-282-0740. Michael and I will ensure that all information gets to the right place right away. If you are left still wanting even more content, please check us out on Patreon. We have filled it with great information about Susan and Evan, Eric and Gypsy, and we are continually adding additional content related to Jessica and Jeremy. This podcast is an independent podcast. That means that everything that goes into making this podcast is done and funded by me. All of the investigative tools and resources are provided by Echo 7 Foxtrot. The tragedies we highlight and investigate have had a tremendous impact on the victims, loved ones, and friends. We don't burden them with additional expenses to cover their cases. We donate our time and talents because we want to help and hope to find the answers they need that are so long overdue. For as little as $5 per month, you can receive exclusive access to members-only photos, videos, early access to episodes, and much, much more. By becoming a patron, you too are helping us help these families. Patreon dot com slash secrets crime. 
I'll also post the link on our Facebook page. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to follow or subscribe in your podcast player of choice and by giving us a five-star rating and review. We are active on social media and often share photos of Jessica and Jeremy. Follow Secrets True Crime on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Secrets Crime. This episode was co-written by me and Michael Fleming. The audio production for this podcast is by Kane Power at precisionpodcasting.com.